Well, God is good. And all the time, God is good. So take those home as a souvenir. And uh, remember, when you're facing something, remember, remember Heidi and, and her courage and what she's up to in her life uh, as well. So did you, didn't find it. Okay. Well, if any of you find a Bible with a black leather, kind of actually it's imitation leather <laughs> on the Bible, um, and it has my name in it, uh, let me know. <laughs> Thank good I have everything right here. Right, there we go. Well, I set it down somewhere. I thought I left it in my office, but I probably set it at some, when I was wandering somewhere around here, but we'll find it. Um, but today we continue our series in The Life You've Always Wanted, a book written by John Ortberg. Uh, I've enjoyed this book years ago, and I thought it'd be really good for us to go through as a church family. So last week I addressed the first two chapters. Today I'll look at chapter three, and then next week Pastor Isaac will be talking about how to have a, a Dida day right? The, del- the discipline of celebration. We could all use a little bit more uh, discipline and celebration, couldn't we? You know, we need to be a little happier sometimes and celebrate the things of God and, and life. And when you, look at, when you look at God and the way he did things in the Old Testament, they had festivals and they celebrated. And somewhere along the line of our Christian walk, for some reason, we decided after Jesus showed us how much he loved us, we should celebrate less. I'm not sure why that is. You know, celebration. No, that's evil. No, this is not good. No. Well, let me tell you, there's going to be a lot of celebrating in heaven. And uh, so we celebrate now as well. But today I want to uh, talk about his chapter, Training versus Trying, which for me, when I first read this book, was worth the price of the book alone and more. That wonderful chapter on really understanding discipleship and why these spiritual exercises and disciplines. So I just want to review a little bit from last week about what we talked about, about transformation. And I want to quote John Ortberg when he said, the good news is that Jesus, the good news as Jesus preached it, is that now it's possible for ordinary men and women to live in the presence and under the power of God. The good news as Jesus preached it is not about the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven. Now listen to that, church. The good news as Jesus preached it is not about the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven. It is about the glorious redemption of human life. Sometimes we can go through this Christian life thinking it's all about just getting into heaven. Now I'm looking forward to that glorious day. But the good news is we don't have to wait for that glorious day to experience the presence, the power, and the reign of God in our life. It happens now today. That's why, see, the kingdom of God isn't about buildings. It's about people. Because the kingdom of God doesn't reside in a building. It resides in the hearts of people. And so wherever we go, if God reigns over us, the reign of God goes on this earth. And so we looked at Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal or by the renovation of your mind. And we saw that Jesus wants to bring about transformation, new creation in our lives. Yes, he wants to get us into heaven, but as Dallas Willard once said, he wants to also get heaven into us, where he reigns and where he lives and where he loves. We looked at Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, and while this is a wonderful verse that brings us comfort during hard times of life, it's really a call to discipleship with Jesus, where Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you remember, if you were here last week, he was talking to people 
who were being burdened by the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders of, of his day were telling everybody they had to take on all these heavy teachings and all these beliefs to, in order to earn favor with God, in, in order to be made right with God. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not it. If you come to me, you're going to get a light yoke. When you came under the teaching of a rabbi, you came under their yoke. They were the master of your life. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and it's light. It's not. You won't be weary and burdened like you are with all these other religious teachers. And so last week we discovered that when we come under the yoke of Jesus, we learn how to become pathological people. Pathological being such to a degree that is extreme, excessive, or markedly abnormal. We become pathological in how we love people and how we forgive people and how we serve people. The compassion we show, the kindness, the gentleness, the humility, and the patience. Because Jesus was extreme and excessive and markedly abnormal in his day in those areas. And so he teaches us those things. And so we looked at the yoke. And, and thank you to, to Jerry Kapitsky, who after he uh, mastered his wife with this yoke, he, um, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that, Jerry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think it was the other way around, Jerry. I just kind of saying, uh, No. But anyways, he gave me this yoke that the ox, they used with oxen in the field. And so they would put the mature ox on one side and the young ox on the other. And the young ox would learn how to be an ox and how to do the things ox needed to do, an oxen needed to do. And so Jesus invites us into a yoke and he says, learn from me. Now imagine Jesus under this yoke right here. And imagine yourself right here. Can you imagine any greater life? than being in the yoke with Jesus? I mean, here's the person who loves you so much he gave his life away for you. Here's someone who loves you so much that when you mess up under the yoke, he goes, I forgive you. Here's a person who says, if you stick with me, I'll show you how to live life freely and abundantly. Watch how I do it. Work with me. That's what the message translation says of Matthew 11. Watch how I do it. You'll learn to live freely and lightly and you'll learn how to gain your life. And so Jesus invites us into this yoke. It's not a yoke of, this is going to be tough and I'm going to make it hard on you. It's a yoke of showing us how to live life and to live with him intimately, to live under his reign and under his power. And so Jesus invites us into that yoke. But church, let's keep it real here this morning. We all have been and are being mastered, shaped, and formed all of the time. Everything we do, the things we watch, the things we hear, the people we associate with, the books we read, the classes we take, everything is shaping and informing us. If we think we're not being influenced and shaped and formed or mastered by anyone else, we're a fool because it's happening all the time our whole life. And part of the good news is that as Jesus invites us to be mastered by him, we can be intentional about that in certain ways. Proverbs 4.23, I've always enjoyed, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. When we enter the yoke with Jesus, he teaches us how to keep our heart and to keep it with vigilance. But if we're not careful, we can, we can be part of the church, grow up in the church, and mistake the things of transformation and settle for pseudo-transformation, which we looked at last week. Boundary marker religion. You know, these are the things that, that make us distinct from everybody. And as Adventists, we can say, oh, Sabbath keeping and, and how we eat. And you can go on with the lists. But let's be honest here. We can have strong obedience to boundary markers and not be in the yoke with Jesus. 
and wonder why we're not happy. I was in the uh, Loma Linda University Medical Center lobby this past week. And I always love that, that the piano is there and they have somebody play the piano most of the time. And it's, it's just wonderful to have that music, to have a real piano playing. Well, when I was there, the piano player was not there, but the piano was playing. <laughs> yes, the Holy Spirit is in the lobby at the medical center at Loma Linda University. So it's a player piano when there's not a player on it. But I was getting a kick out of a conversation I heard just to the side of me when this person of knowledge explained to them that you can tell it's not a real piano playing, that it's really a recording because real pianos, you can hear the sustain and you can hear all these types of things. And I'm just sitting there laughing inside going, the piano's playing, but they think it's a recording. And she's saying that's not a real piano playing because there's not somebody at it. We can be that way in the spiritual life. We can get confused at the boundary markers are proof that we are intimately involved with Jesus and even start saying that's proof of transformation. But let's remind ourselves that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were all about the boundary markers, but they did not know God when he was staring them in the face. As human beings, the opportunity to be a disciple of Jesus may not always seem like the best option we have. It may not always seem like the best opportunity if I think I need to have control over things and people, being a disciple of Jesus may not seem like the best option. If I think manipulation works better than trusting Jesus in a situation, I may not think discipleship and the yoke of Jesus is the best choice for me. I always loved the joke of the little girl who was asked in Sabbath school one morning, what is a lie? And the little girl raised her hand and she said, it's an abomination to the Lord and an ever-present help in time of need. <laughs> We laugh, but don't you feel that way sometimes? I'm not going to lie. It's just a little white lie. Because if I do the right thing and if I tell the truth, I can't trust God to take care of me through that. When you've got to do something right, what? You do it yourself. And so you fib, you fudge, you do this or that. Following Jesus in that moment doesn't seem like the best option for me. But it's a personal invitation from Jesus himself to follow him to learn from him, to be personally trained by him through the presence of the Holy Spirit and ultimately to be transformed by Jesus himself, to actually and to literally receive his life into our very being. Now, John Ortberg in, in this book starts off chapter three with a wonderful situation, imaginative situation, which, which I just want to share with you if you haven't read it. it. It's just inspiring. He says, now imagine a group of people coming to your home and interrupting your Twinkie-eating TV-watching routine with an urgent message. Good news! We're from the United States Olympic Committee. We've been looking for someone to run the marathon in the next Olympics. We have statistics on every person in the entire nation on the computer. We've checked everybody's records, their performance in the presidential physical fitness test in grade school, body type, bone structure, right down to their current percentage of body fat. We have determined that out of 200 million Americans, you are the one person in America with a chance to bring home the gold medal in the marathon. Now just imagine this. So you're on the squad. You will run the race. This is the chance of a lifetime. You're surprised by this because the farthest you have ever run is from the couch to the refrigerator. But after the first shock passes, you are gripped by the realization of what's happening in your life. You picture yourself mingling with the elite athletes of the world. 
You allow yourself to imagine that maybe you do have what it takes. At night, you dream about standing on the podium after the race and hearing the national anthem, seeing the flag raised, and bending low to receive the gold medal. You begin to feel a sense of urgency. (laughs) It will be your body wearing those little racing togs with a billion people watching on television. But greater than any external pressure is the internal drive that says, this is the race I was created to run. This is my destiny. This is why I was born. Here's my chance. Now listen to what he says. This race becomes the greatest passion of your life. It dominates your mind. It occupies every waking moment. To run the race well, to win it if you can, becomes the central focus of your existence. It is what gets you out of bed in the morning. It is what you live for. It is the chance of a lifetime. Then it dawns on you. Right now, you cannot run a marathon. (laughs) More to the point, you cannot run a marathon even if you really tried really hard. Trying hard could accomplish only so much. If you are serious about seizing this chance of a lifetime, you will have to enter into a life of training. You must arrange your life around certain practices that will enable you to do what you cannot do now by willpower alone. And when it comes to running a marathon, you must train, not merely try. See the difference, church? Training versus trying. I remember when I was just a lad, I think it was in the early 70s, I was probably less than 10, around 10 years old, and I remember watching the Olympics, and I thought about that. Yes, I want to be on the stand. Yes, I want to have the medal. Yes, I want to see the flag be raised because of something that I did, and so I began running. I started trying, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and testify to you today, I never made it. Of course, you already knew that, right? But I tried really hard. I thought, oh, I have like 20 years. That's plenty of time to get in shape, plenty of time to do this. And my trying never paid off. Now, maybe if I'd entered into a relationship with somebody who knew how to win a marathon and train with them, I might have made it. But I thought if I just tried really hard, I could. So John Orberg says, I devote this chapter to the single most helpful principle I know regarding spiritual transformation. And here's the principle. There is an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. An immense difference. Spiritual transformation is not a matter of trying harder, but of training wisely. See, when Jesus invites us into the yoke with him, he just doesn't say, he doesn't say, now, now try harder, try harder, try harder. Come on, try harder, do better, try harder. He says, train with me. Train with me. Watch me. Be with me. When you're with me, you'll learn how to do this. And through the supernatural power of my presence, of you abiding in me, I will bear forth fruit in your life. Because remember, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The message translation says, steer, I love this, steer clear of silly stories that get dressed up as religion. Exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. You see, we have to remember, church, that the word discipline and the word disciple are closely related. A disciple is someone who is disciplined. 
disciplined about certain things. Unfortunately, the word discipline has taken on negative connotations in our society because if you say, I need to discipline you, what does that mean? You're busted. <laughs> you're in trouble. It means you did something wrong and you're going to get a timeout, you're going to be suspended, or you're going to be spanked, or something's going to happen. Discipline the child. But discipline, in the positive sense, is when one trains oneself to do something in a controlled and habitual way. So, for instance, you know the bumper sticker, practice random acts of kindness? That's a wonderful thing. But I would suggest, what if we practiced habitual acts of kindness? It might even happen more often, rather than randomly happening. But if it's a discipline that I've learned under the yoke of Jesus to be kind, it's going to be a habitual thing. It's going to happen in a way in which you don't even think about it anymore. It's just who we are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words, which Ortberg quotes on the first page of his chapter. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Let's just let that sink in. Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. I remember growing up in the church, and I remember one person saying to me, this was their view, and I respect that, but they said, discipleship is an option. You can be a Christian without being a discipleship. Discipleship are for the fanatics. Discipleship are for the really, really overboard people who just, they go crazy about this thing. To Jesus, discipleship is the only level. Come follow me. Come follow me. When this happens, we grow in grace. Like Peter wrote in the second epistle, he says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Yes, we can grow in grace. We can't earn God's grace, but we can grow in it. If you want a little homework for this week, do yourself a, a favor and do a word search on the word grace in the New Testament. Go on the internet, go on your Bible software, whatever you have on your phone or whatever you have, your tablet, and just search for grace from Matthew through Revelation. And you will find, one of the things you will find that the word grace hardly appears in the context of forgiveness. We often associate it with forgiveness. Oh, someone messed up? Grace, you're forgiven. Forgiveness is an expression of grace by God. But grace is God's activity in the world and in people's life. God's power. When you look at grace, you'll see it often has to do with transforming power in our life. So we can grow in grace. The invitation to follow Jesus is the invitation of grace. My choice to follow is me leaning into his grace. Dallas Willard once again said, Grace is opposed to earning, not effort can never earn grace, but we sure can stand in it. We can live in it. We can submit our lives to it and surrender to God in that. And so John Warburg suggests that we enter a life of discipline, of being a disciple of Jesus. And there are various disciplines that we're going to look at for the remainder of this book. The discipline of celebration, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of solitude, the discipline of worship, the discipline of service, the discipline of suffering. All kinds of disciplines. Basically, there are disciplines of engagement and disciplines of abstinence. Maybe you knew that today when you came to worship, you were practicing the spiritual muscles of worship. You came to worship today. That's a discipline of engagement. Some of you went to Bible study today. That's a discipline of engagement. Some of you spent some time in solitude this morning. That's a discipline of abstinence. Some of you may be fasting that's a discipline of abstinence. All these different things that Jesus also practiced and his disciples practice. 
But Orpert also suggests that we not get confused about these disciplines. Practicing spiritual exercises or disciplines are not a way, they're not a barometer of our spirituality. For instance, I may spend an hour alone in Scripture every morning, but if it's not changing me, if being with Jesus in that way is not changing me, I still have a problem with rage and anger and unforgiveness, then what am I really doing in that time? Am I really surrendering to Jesus in that time, or am I just trying to, con- to, to control more information so I have more texts to throw out at people? They are not a way to earn favor with God. I'm not right with God because I read my Bible every morning or I memorize scripture or because I keep Sabbath or those types of things. I have favor with God because he's simply chosen to give it to me. And there are things to consider as we practice these spiritual disciplines. Some things that he brings out that I think are essential. Wise training respects the freedom of the spirit. See, when we practice a spiritual discipline or exercise, he says it's more like sailing a sailboat than driving a motorboat. Motorboat, we're in control. We have the gas. We have the power. We have the wheel. In a sailboat, we put up the sail and we're at the mercy of the wind. A spiritual exercise is simply that. It's us putting up the sail in our life. God, where are you leading? What do you want to do? I spend time in prayer. I spend time in your word. I spend time worshiping. I spend time serving. All those are just putting the sail up and let the spirit lead the ship and guide my life and fill the sail. Wise training also respects our temperaments and gifts. Not all of us will connect in the same ways with the different spiritual exercises. We'll do it in different ways and experience it in unique ways. And I love how he says wise training will always take into account our season of life. Some of us here are parents of young children, and we thought there is no time to be time in the yoke with Jesus. Let me tell you, if you have kids, you are in the yoke with Jesus, (laughs) okay? Those of you who have kids who are growing up, you know. And I like to say... Being a parent is one of the greatest spiritual exercises you could ever experience because you're going to learn more about yourself. (laughs) You're going to find out what's really deep in your heart. You're going to learn all these types of things, and you're going to have more chances to surrender your life to Jesus than you ever had. So look at your children because just like Moses, they are burning bushes that that are not consumed that you can turn aside and say, Jesus, teach me. Teach me. We can learn so much from our children and how we are with them. At the same time, the years of retirement are not a hindrance. I will never forget Alma Tucker a couple years ago at our retreat for leaders. And on that retreat, we all spent about two hours of solitude alone with God. And Alma testified. She says, I've been spending a long time with Jesus for decades. I thought, what new am I going to get out of this? And she, she gave God that time. She put the cell up. She came back and she says, I can't believe how God met me in those two hours. Wow all because she surrendered to God in that moment. No stage of life can hinder us from being trained by Jesus. And church, may I just remind us of the big picture. John 15, 5. Remember these words of Jesus? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, when we enter the yoke, we remain with Jesus. We make our home there. We reside with him. And he says, when you abide in me, when you live under my yoke, when you trust my life in your hands, when you surrender and let me be the master of your life, you're going to bear a lot of fruit. And we're not talking grapes here. You're going to bear a lot of love, a lot of compassion, 
a lot of sacrifice, a lot of forgiving, a lot of a lot of the kingdom of God in our lives. But remember, if we don't want to be in the yoke with Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but I'll give you a little insight into my wedding ring. This wedding ring is, um, on it, it has vines and branches. And inside is engraved John 15, 5. And I wear this because I see it every day and in everything I do. And it reminds me that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Of any value anyways, of any eternal value. So as I eat, as I use the remote control, as I'm on the computer, as I'm helping people, as I'm parenting, as I love my wife, as I pastor, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Abide in me. Make your home in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And when we do this, things begin to look different. Our lives change. We are transformed. I've had the privilege of coaching a flag football team for the last four years. When we first moved here, one of Andrew's favorite sports is football. And so we were a little bummed when we found out Mesa Grande didn't have a football team. Fortunately, God moved upon the Azure Hills Church to start a league. And they started a flag football league for kids that happens at Loma Linda Academy on Sunday mornings. And so we, we joined. We joined up there. And, and of course, they're always looking for volunteers. Would you be willing to coach? I said, sure. This gives me an opportunity to be with Andrew in a special way. And so I said I would coach. And so we started coaching. We had a great year. I knew nobody on the team but Andrew. But the kids were wonderful. And uh, we ended up having a great year. Won the championship that year. It was high moment. Next year, we had what we called a rebuilding year. <laughs> if you know what that means, that means we lost pretty much every game, maybe won one. All of our guys were young, hadn't played before, and we were learning. And the other teams, some of them were big, <laughs> fast, dominating. And some of them, I would say, didn't have the best sportsmanship along with some of their coaches. So when you're getting killed 40 to nothing, they decide to throw a Hail Mary pass to the end zone and score on you again at the last seconds of the game. What does that do? What are we teaching our kids? So it's not always a good thing to have a pastor for your coach. Because the pastor, yeah, we like to win, but we know it's not everything. And so I would share with the kids sometimes, you know, remember, we're out here, but character is the most important thing. Remember that if we go out there and we kill the other team 45 to nothing, and we were bad sports and didn't treat them in a good way, we've lost. But if we get killed 45 to nothing and we have good sportsmanship and good character and good attitudes, we've won. So last year, we made it to the dance, we made it to the championship. Unfortunately, we lost in the last couple of minutes. But this year, now that we've been rebuilding for a couple of years, we're the team to beat. And so now we're, we're, we're growing in character formation in a different way. How can we win graciously? How can we help the other team lose graciously? And so we get to a certain point in the game and I huddle the guys up, and they, and they look at me. They know what I'm about to say. All right, guys, we need to let them score. 
Not a problem. Let me tell you, they have gotten so good at letting the other team score. Without letting on that, we're letting them score. It's more fun to watch than the rest of the game. Some of these players have gotten so good. In fact, Zach, he's getting a little bashful there right now. But Zach has gotten so good that when he goes for a person's flag, he can get the top of the flag, glide all the way down to the bottom of the flag, and not pull it. And it looks like he just missed it. And it is fun to watch. And there are other guys on the team, too. They're trying. They're diving, and they're missing, and they're doing everything. And it is just so fun to watch because they know what it's like to walk away and not just get beat, but get demolished and humiliated. That doesn't build character as much as, well, you know. So one of our last games, you know, and sometimes you try to help teams help themselves, and sometimes that doesn't always work. So you got to do it for them. So... So one time, we were trying to help them score a couple times, and they would throw an interception, you know, and we'd bat it down, or we'd whatever. So one time, there was less than two minutes in the game, and they hadn't scored yet. And I go, all right, guys, I need somebody to man up. <laughs> we got to help them score in two minutes. And so I'll brag on my son a little bit. He goes, I'll do it. So all right. Dropped back, threw it right into the chest of their best player. <laughs> and we tried to grab their flags. We zigzagged. We tried everything. They got in the end zone, got the extra point, and they scored a touchdown. It was a good day. It was a good day. It was a good day. But in, in all of that, I remember somebody, and I don't remember who, but when they were playing a certain way and they were looking really good, somebody said, you know who they look like out there? And they were going to name some NFL team. And I said, Team Jesus. That's what they look like. That's what they look like. Because, you know, someday the games are going to be over. And it's not a matter if we win or lose the games or win or lose the fights or win or lose the arguments. It's about extending the love and the kingdom of God through our lives. And that only happens when we're trained by Jesus under his yoke. It's the greatest life, the greatest invitation that we've ever had. In closing, may I just read this from John Orberg? He says, Jesus confronted people directly about the choice to become a follower. He came with the gracious announcement that it is now possible to live in the presence and under the reign of God. That was his good news. It is possible to live in such a way that when people see us, they will say to themselves, wow, I didn't know that a life could look like that. It indeed happens. It has happened for many who have followed Christ, and it really is possible for us. This is the pearl of great value of which Jesus spoke, for which any sensible person would sell everything. This is the race for which we were born, but we will not drift into such a life. We must decide. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful today that you have offered us the invitation of being trained by you personally through the presence of your Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus, we enter that life with you, and we thank you that you are gentle and humble in your teaching of us, that your yoke is not burdensome and won't be wearisome, but we'll find rest for our souls. And so, Jesus... We thank you for your grace, your favor towards us, your invitation to us. And now by your grace, we also want to lean into you. We want to apply some effort. We are going to accept the call to follow you. May we not be content with boundary markers, but Lord, may we only be content with knowing you in a personal, powerful, and passionate way, being transformed by you. And thank you, Lord, that you don't expect perfection once we enter the yoke with you. You know there's going to be mistakes. You know there's going to be failures. It's part of what disciples do. So thank you for your forgiveness. 
Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your hand that reaches out to us to lift us up again. And your embrace that enfolds us and reminds us that you love us forever and will never be separated from you. Take a moment now in silent prayer to enjoy your master this morning and enjoy his yoke for your life.